Hi, it's Eva. Before we dive into select replays from season one, I wanted to let you know that my book launched a couple weeks ago. It's called The Good Your Money Can Do, and it is a guide for anyone looking to use all of their resources to find meaning and purpose and to do good. You can check it out at thegoodyourmoneycando.com, and you can buy it at a number of independent bookstores that are also listed on my website, including bookshop.org. I would love to hear your feedback. Please connect with me on social media at Conscious Investor on Instagram or through LinkedIn to let me know how you liked it. Thank you so much for your support. But in the last 40 years, it's upwards of 90% of all profit made goes to only 100 companies. Any of the three of us go out into our community and these small businesses just unquestionably make our lives better, make our community better, make everything better. The new capitalism is now really more like cronyism and monopoly and oligarchy. So that's what we're fighting against, but it's masquerading as capitalism. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Dan Price. Dan Price is the CEO of Gravity Payments. Most people know him for his decision to give up millions of his own salary so that everyone at Gravity Payments would make a minimum wage of $70,000. Gravity Payments is a credit card and payment processing company catering to small businesses. Dan was awarded Young Entrepreneur of the Year by President Obama, and Gravity Payments has received several awards for being a great place to work. Dan just released a new book called Worth It. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, y'all. Really appreciate you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for joining us. We're excited to have this conversation. So I think it would be good if we could just dive a little bit into gravity payments and what the company does, but perhaps just giving the flavor of um, the, the values that you have at the company, such as radical transparency and also um, equality and pay amongst your employees. And then we'll kind of jump from there to your book, which we're very enthusiastic to discuss today. Cool. Yeah. So a little bit about gravity. Um, I uh, grew up uh, playing rock music. Um, I started a band when I was 12 and we played at a, a coffee shop after hours because we needed an under 21 venue. And so we'd turn this coffee shop into our venue and the owner, Heather, she was just the best. You know, she had a small coffee shop that, you know, gave us all a place to gather, provided jobs to a lot of my friends and everything. And just the best in terms of like the small business, like making her community better. Um, and she was telling me one day about how she had to pay upwards of four or 5% of her revenue just to get paid on a credit card that that doesn't make any sense. It was the fourth highest cost of doing business for her 
after, you know, cost of goods sold, wages and, and her lease. And so I, I just thought that that seems crazy. That seems wrong. And I just jumped in and I, I did something kind of weird, but I just negotiated that for her. And I started doing that for a bunch of other businesses. And so it basically the company started just trying to stick up for just independent businesses. And then eventually we started building our own uh, payment processing um, platform so that we didn't have to depend on other people. And we charge about half the margin of what our, you know, competitors who, you know, are public companies and publish what they charge and everything. We charge about half the margin of what they do. And then um, things changed a lot. I don't know if y'all have read Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, but he talks a lot about in that basically two things. One, it's only billionaires that matter in his book. The rest, the rest of us don't matter at all. We're barely even human. Um, and then two, the only way to become a billionaire is to have a monopoly. And so we're seeing that with like the likes of, you know, Amazon and Starbucks and Facebook and all these companies that are basically wanting to be monopolies. And so we started to see that trend five, six, seven years ago, and the, we had to shift our business to adapt to that. And so now what we do, in addition to what we've always done, is we have technology solutions that allow small businesses to be able to keep up digitally. So, you know, we have, for example, like, you know, veterinarians that have like uh, the ability to like pay them via mobile, via text. You know, we have lawyers where you can pay them like in a like in an email format. You know, we have all just all these technology solutions that help independent small businesses compete in the age, in the digital age where things are being consolidated into these technology companies. Um, you know, one example is like we have a, a, a product, a partner called Joe Coffee, and it's order ahead technology. And that's because Starbucks developed order ahead technology in their app. And now if you're running late, instead of supporting your local coffee shop, you're going to Starbucks. So then we had to develop that technology to keep the local independent shop on a level playing field. So really what we're trying to do is just um, stick up for people that are fighting for the American dream and fighting against monopolies. Do you focus on any specific industries? So when we started, we did basically every industry because it was all via word of mouth referral. So I had no kind of control over how to do it. But now we do tend to focus on an industry by industry basis because that allows us to get a lot more depth in terms of our solutions. So some of the industries where we really make a big difference and, and have a, a big footprint is like veterinary clinics, um, uh, dentists and orthodontists, um, uh, heavy equipment dealers, uh, marine dealers, auto dealers. But in general, if you think about our business, it's kind of like a quarter like restaurant and hospitality, a quarter retail and e-commerce, a quarter service-based business, and then a quarter kind of everything else. B2B, B2G, specialty businesses, heavy equipment, all that good stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, my parents own and operate a furniture store, small furniture store in Ohio that's been running now probably over 40 years. My dad is a small business person just like your customers. So I started this business because of people like your dad. You know what I mean? I just get so much inspiration and drive out of seeing them succeed. To me, that's just the best, so... Dan, your message is really powerful, and it is um, something that you've really been able to get out there um, into the world. You've been a speaker. You've been had numerous television appearances. 
what makes you so passionate about the message of having the, the, the equality of pay in your organization, but also the work that you're doing at Gravity Payments in helping young, young businesses, not necessarily young businesses, but small businesses? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's just the facts of, of what we're up against. If you look at like the last year we have data, 86% of all new wealth generated went to the top 1%. So that's something that, that we know. The other thing that a lot of people don't know is that 40 years ago, the top 100 companies in the United States controlled roughly like 40% of the profit, 40 to 50% of the profit in the United States. And you might think 100 companies controlling almost half the profit. That's way too much. And it is. But in the last 40 years, it's upwards of 90% of all profit made goes to only 100 companies. And as I mentioned in that book that Peter Thiel wrote, you know, the idea of these companies is if you get to a certain scale, you can basically act in impunity. You, if, you, if you get in trouble, you'll get a bailout. And then when times are good, you can leverage your scale to create, you know, kind of a monopoly or oligopoly type uh, situation. And like in my industry, closer to home, you know, you have Visa and MasterCard, American Express that literally break monopoly laws just as a course of business because they know that the settlement that they'll pay or what they'll get hit with, with, you know, kind of how we've defanged our, 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 our public um, law enforcement against these big corporations, you know, they'll end up only paying a fraction of what they make by breaking the law as a fine for breaking the law. And so... You know, that's just the world that we're seeing right now. And new business formation is about half, almost down to half of the peak. Um, and, you know, our typical small business client only has 27 days of kind of savings and liquidity and ability to stay in business in a scenario where their revenue gets interrupted. But yet, any of the three of us go out into our community and these small businesses just unquestionably make our lives better, make our community better, make everything better and are just so great. And so to me, the situation that they're in from a statistical standpoint, because I think sometimes they think, oh, I must be an idiot. And it's like, if you look at the statistics, it's not you, it's not a personal thing. And so that macro info combined with how much they try and how much they care to me, it makes it just like a just people that you want to serve and that you feel fulfilled by serving. So I don't think it's anything about me. I just think I, I see this info and we at Gravity see this info and we find it to be extremely compelling. Yeah, and you brought up service and servant leadership, I assume, is something that you, you practice, at least seems like it. Um, and I think we've, we've noticed on this podcast that that is a component of a purpose-driven leader. It is a servant, servant leadership component of, you know, looking beyond yourself. Um, mm -hmm. so I think that's fantastic. And the other, thank you. I mean, yeah. And what you say really resonates with me. I've been thinking a lot about Richard Branson and there's a tremendous amount uh, of um, commentary out there about his request for a bailout from the UK government and a lot of pushback and discussion around, you know, does he deserve it? He's put up Necker Island as collateral, but also is not a UK taxpayer, things like that. So I think, um, I think, you know, 
your your mission is is very clear, and I, I love the support for small businesses. I do want to transition to COVID and the pandemic, um, as that, as we all know and could imagine, has a tremendous impact on social, on small businesses. Um, you mentioned that they only have 27 days of of runway. Um, and so how is COVID impacting your business? So our competitors charge all these extra fees that we don't charge, monthly fees, subscription fees, all those sorts of things. And so they have a little bit of a buffer and they use these uh, catastrophes as an excuse that they have to increase those fees. And then they tend to keep them even after the, the crisis is gone. We don't have any of that. And so the only way we make money is when our, when our clients make money, when small businesses make money. And so with small businesses losing 55% of their revenue on average, you know, our restaurant portfolio is down 75%, but our veterinarians are only down by 20%. When you average it all out, all the different industries that we work with, you know, audiology clinics are down 100%, dentists are down 100%. But when you average it all out, small businesses are down 55%. And that's even with a huge amount of effort and ingenuity uh, from those small businesses to not be down more. So our revenue is down 55%. We lost half of our revenue. And we went from, we have a little bit of debt that we pay off. And so we went from making about a half million dollars uh, per month in EBITDA to pay off debt and all those things to uh, losing a million and a half dollars a month. And our um, small business customers went from making in revenue a billion dollars a month to only making about uh, $450 million a month. So it's a pretty staggering um, cratering that's happened to our small business economy. We've been subjected to that and we basically got to ourselves into a place where we're losing $1.5 million a month. And we had literally less than, you know, a few months before, you know, before we'd be completely out of, of, of funds uh, due to the COVID crisis. So there was a lot of news about your employees stepping up and helping you. Um, that made total sense to me. You know, your company has really been there. You've, you're probably the number one thought leader on a living wage for, for all of your employees at, at that $70,000 level. And you've been there for your partners by not charging those fees. I was wondering, and I know you probably can't get into details here, but an interesting thing in times like this is you kind of figure out who who your good partners are and, and who yeah. aren't your good partners. Have there been any surprises, people who sort of you thought that they were along for the, for the purpose-driven ride, and then all of a sudden when things got tough, they – they weren't so much. Have, have you had any of those surprises or have you been, you know, is that, has that uh, sort of goodwill carried through on your supplier side as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I can't think of anybody specifically. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it's still kind of TBD, but I agree with you that the crisis does reveal a lot about you, about, you know, what you're going to do, your character when push comes to shove. I would say I've been more surprised on the other end because I've literally had thousands of people reach out to me just in the last month offering to help in any way that they can. And um, I'm hearing from competitors, um, you know, kind of confidentially 
that they're such huge fans of us that they're rooting for us. Um, in fact, the immediate past CEO of the largest credit card processor in the world, which is many times over, you know, huge multi-billion dollar company that's way bigger than we are, uh, you know, tens of thousands of employees and everything. His, he owns a few family businesses and he knows everybody in our industry. He knows everything about our industry. He's one of the most successful people, you know, in the history of our industry. And he, uh, his, his family businesses use gravity. Um, I even heard a sales rep from one of our leading competitors, a company called Heartland Payment Systems, that's probably one of the top companies outside of us in the industry. That, and he's, he's in sales. So he literally makes sales commissions and all these sorts of things, which we don't do. We don't do commissions. He, he told me, can't share his name, of course, that it, like his family owns a restaurant and he signed his restaurant up with us, even though he works for one of our competitors in sales. And so it's kind of like a, a bit of an open secret in our industry, like what a kind of hidden gem we are because we're so much smaller than our competitors are. And we don't really have like a drive for growth for growth's sake. You know, we're not like trying to chase like VC returns or like, you know, mega billionaire status or anything like that. Right. And so... So, you know, it's just, it's just like been an open secret, but in the crisis, that secret's been getting out more. So even though our revenue's down and there's not really anything that we can do to benefit from it in the short term from a financial standpoint, the fact is we've had more demand and connectivity with, with everybody since the crisis started than we ever had before. Really cool to hear that. Really, really cool. I agree. And do you think it, it relates to how you lead with your values? Um, probably. I mean, I think that, um, you know, our industry believes that, you know, they just have the, the ultimate like say and leverage over their clients. Like, you know, you just like, um, you know, the, even the, the CEO who's literally a client of mine said, Hey, Dan, like, it's very simple how you solve this. There's only one way. If you do it, you're surviving. If you don't, you don't survive. You got to do a $50 price increase for your 20,000 small businesses. That'll generate a million dollars a month. And then you're going to do a 20 to 30% layoff. Um, and then you're going to start hiring and, 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 and growing again, and you'll be on a very stable ground. Uh, you know, your balance sheet will go from looking horrible to looking fantastic and you'll be in this for the long term. And, you know, he's right. Like that would be the right thing to do. And of course, no one's going to blame a business for taking necessary actions to stay in business when they lost 55% of their revenue, they're losing $1.5 million dollars. A month, uh, you know, one of our competitors laid off 50% of their staff, a company, uh, a company called Toast. Um, and, you know, they had just raised a $400 million uh, VC round uh, off of a $5 billion valuation. And, they, and, and as soon as they got the money in the bank, even though they could afford to pay everyone, they figured it's better to lay off half the staff. And that's what we're seeing all over the place. I couldn't believe that when I saw it. I was, yeah. I was just incredulous. I mean, like that takes some guts to do after just raising that money. Like I, and, and the re the repercussions are very minimal for companies that do those things. I think that, you know, I was five years ago when I announced and we'll talk about, you know, this more like with the book, but five years ago when I t announced I was taking a million dollar pay cut to pay everyone $70,000 a year, 
I really thought that this kind of like movement of like business for good and consumer choice and all those things like was going to make a difference. And, you know, people call it things like conscious capitalism and all those sorts of things. But the fact is we do tend to forgive our companies that act with this type of impunity very, very quickly. There are very minimal consequences. And, uh, you know, it takes one bad company to make up for one bad company. You need like a thousand good companies doing the right thing. I'll give you two quick analogies. One is my sister. She believes in no waste. So she like doesn't use traditional cleaning products and she does everything to save the tiniest bit of waste. Won't use things like paper towels or anything disposable. And, you know, there are restaurants in Florida that like are serving for here in styrofoam. So like one person going to shop like wipes out my sister's entire year. Another funny little example uh, that I like to cite is, you know, people talk about solar and it's true. Solar has been really incredible getting solar panels all, out there and all the energy that that saves. It's been a wonderful, fast growing initiative. But Bitcoin uses more energy than solar saves. And Bitcoin didn't even exist 10 years ago. And so it's like like it, one person dumping poison into a lake. It takes a lot of people kind of like planting flowers and gardens and composting you know, it takes thousands and thousands of people. And so if we don't have laws, you know, and that's kind of, I think what we're seeing where the reason why it makes sense to do these other things, even in my case, you know, people are like, yeah, but you got all this positive attention and yada, yada. I'm like, look, I, I mean, it's really easy to make a boatload of money and then give some to charity or philanthropy and get positive attention if that's what you're looking for. And by the way, you can hire a publicist. You know, I went from in my 20s, going from having, you know, no money to being a multimillionaire. And in my 30s, my uh, net worth has not gone up at all. I haven't made any money. And I'm, I'm totally happy with that. But it's not exactly like a screaming endorsement for my way of doing business that other people can follow. Like, I hope that people can get things out of like this podcast and things that I do. But ultimately, until we actually change our laws, and create less of an incentive for bad behavior, uh, we're just going to keep getting that bad behavior that we're incentivizing through our tax code and our laws. Yeah, that's a deep subject. We could probably do a couple hours on that one for sure. Um, I know that Eva wants to, to dive into your book, but I occasionally have uh, been known on this show to give cheap advice. And, um, and, and one thing that I was thinking about related to small businesses and my dad and this COVID crisis is um, how important it is for a for a small business owner to 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 use their business to buy a building to buy their building, um, mm. you know, and and that's something that probably is not directly related to your business. But I don't know if you provide that kind of advice or or if you if you help them figure out how to do it. Um, because, you know, my dad, he bought his building. He actually ha got the owner to finance it, you know, thir 35, 40 years ago because he didn't have any money, but he, the owner liked him and kind of talked him into financing the building for him and, you know, paid it off over 15 years. And now that my dad's 79 and, you know, he's still running his furniture store. And wow. the, the COVID crisis didn't really bother him too much because he's kind of tired and he was thinking about retiring. He's like, well, I get a month off here and, you know, he doesn't have rent. And so, you know, that really helps. 
Um, so I was just going to throw that out there for, for small businesses. Yeah. I think the most important thing besides aligning with vendors like you is to really, really make sure they think about that and buy their building because by and large, a small business doesn't have equity that they can sort of sell, you know, that no one's going to buy right. my dad's furniture store, but they'll buy his yeah. building, you know? And so sure. he can, he can lease That's that. Great advice. Yeah. So if you ever want to dive into that, um, you know, we should, you know, maybe, that's something I feel really passionate about with small businesses. They've yeah. got to buy their buildings. Yeah. I'll say, though, too, in COVID-19, it's like you have to have digital solutions right now. Yeah. And a lot of our clients are just like the like best, like most giving, like most respected businesses in their communities. So some of them, you know, just like leaned into digital solutions because they felt like it was the right thing to do, but many of them didn't have to because they had this very loyal legacy customer base that would bend over backwards to like engage with them. And now with COVID that's not possible. And so they're having to reinvent themselves really quickly. And it's amazing though, to see how some of these small business owners are fighting for like to get from like only being down 70% instead of 75% because it means they can save one employee's job and that those are the types of inspirational things that I'm seeing right now in the crisis. And I, I hope that that leads to them being strong enough that they can think about buying their buildings. Because what you've also had is when 86% of the money every year accrues to the top 1%, that money needs to go somewhere. And so the, the asset prices, you know, just inflate like crazy because every, you know, six, seven years, the top 1% you know, 10 X is their advantage over everybody else. And a lot of times those small business owners, not all of them are in that group. And so, you know, hopefully we can make some progress in eroding the, the advantage that the wealthy companies and the wealthy people have over the small ones, because obviously, you know, if the, if the cost of the building, you know, goes sky high right. and the liquidity options that the seller has, are so huge because there's so much money out there that needs to get invested, then that creates an additional obstacle to a business that's already being squeezed. So what I want to know is, was it worth it to take a million dollar pay cut? And this, this is a segue into your book and the message um, that I assume is consistent with what you've been telling us, but maybe you could kind of give us the, the concise message of your book, but, but really, first and foremost, was it worth it and why? It was, but not for the reason that I thought. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So the reason most people thought it would be worth it is they're like, this guy got such a great PR bonanza and marketing, yada, yada, yada. He's going to make so much more money from it. I never believed that because like, I'm in a B2B space most of my customers don't have time to pay attention to any of that. Some do, but most don't. And so I never believed that once. I thought maybe that some of that marketing activity could make up for 20 or 30% of the cost, but not more than that. Um, and then, you know, people also talked about motivation. And th this is all in the book. You know, people talk about motivation as like, oh, were your employees more motivated? It's like, we're our employees are motivated by our mission. They're not motivated by money. Money could be a demotivator or a distractor or something to figure out. 
but our employees are motivated by helping small businesses compete against big companies. Like it's like David and Goliath, like who wouldn't be motivated by that? So that's our motivation. So it's like, well, yeah, but the, the extra pay doubling somebody's pay, it increases their capability because they can invest in themselves. They can invest in their health, having a healthy lifestyle that supports productivity. And also it creates license. All of a sudden when you're making a living wage, you feel like your voice matters. And so, um, you know, I think all of those things, what's unquestionable is we were able to make it, we were able to pull it off. We were, we tripled in size over the five years from 2015 until the beginning of 2020. Wow. So to, to triple during that intervening time, I think proves, and we, most of that time there was no media attention, there was no press, and we were still growing. Through, we grew consistently throughout that time. Um, now, somebody wants to point out, of course, that, you know, how do you know you wouldn't have grown more or been more successful had you not done it? And I think that's unquestionably true. Like, that could be. Like, I don't know that. But what I will say is I prior to COVID was happier than I've ever been in my life. And the situation that I had, which was just wonderful in paradise was I could pay my bills and meet my own needs. I was not becoming wealthier the way that I had been previously, but I could meet my needs. And I was in a community of people where everybody could meet their needs. And that created so much joy and satisfaction and happiness. Also the company increasingly back then became more and more about everybody on the team and the idea and the principles behind the company. And it became less and less about me as an individual, which is so relieving. It's all that pressure. You know, COVID's challenging that because I do have, you know, uh, probably more experience with these than, you know, most of the people at Gravity. And so, you know, so I'm having to kind of like take shoulder a little bit more in the short term. But the team is all springing into action quickly. So it'll be very short term, like through that transition. And it was just like this thing where it's like, wow, like instead of chasing like ego-based stuff, you know, Forbes list, like be as wealthy as possible. It's very practical. Figure out what you need. I mean, for retirement too, you know, for most people, they probably need something like $3 million to retire on. So I want people to have $3 million to retire on. Most people need fifty or a hundred thousand dollars a year to live on, so I want them to have fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. It's very practical, like have everything you need, but then have other people get what they need, and don't let that like extreme scary scarcity mindset cause you to give in to the the egotistical thing of thinking, "Oh, I want to be more wealthy. I want to make as much money as possible." And that shift, I think, is what made it worth it for me and made me so happy and joyful. Yeah, one of one of the women that I really admire in finance, Sally Krawcheck, says when you give, it doesn't mean something's being taken away from you. And that kind of rings true with what you're saying, that, you know, being in a community where people's needs are met doesn't mean that it's it's taking away from you. In fact, it's, it's really refreshing to hear that you found joy in that. It's taking away something that I don't need and giving me something that I do need is another way of saying the same thing. Yeah. So, so when you, when you raised the salaries, I have like an operational question. Um, yeah. So when you raised the, the salaries overnight, your cost of serve, serving your customers went up by some amount. Um, if, yep. 
and then and then it either you know productivity and other things kind of took over and you, you leveled out at some level that was either close to or or you know higher than your your previous level of ser- cost of serving your customers did you have to like get really really hardcore on like operations and sharpening the pencil um or did you or did that kind of take care of itself because people were like way more not motivated as you said but just way more empowered um and and uh sort of strengthened through that action or did the per the cost of serving just kind of go up and and you lived with it i mean i think that the cost of paying too little is higher than we realize in terms of all the turnover so our turnover got cut in half yeah yeah that is a huge uh, uh cost decreaser to have your turnover cut in half um and i'm not saying that turnover is a bad thing necessarily but like a high turnover ha- does have high cost in most industries our industry is very complex there's a lot to learn and so if we're churning through people it's a high cost of the business so we were able to basically cut out that excess turnover cut out that cost and only have turnover that's truly like good and healthy that saved us a lot of money but it didn't get us all the way there and this is where i learned and evolved because when I announced it, I felt like actually that we could make it work without going after the people at the top. And in the short term, I had taken a million dollar pay cut to be able to allow us to afford it. But my plan that I announced that day was to make that temporary and to take my pay back up once we had recovered. But what I learned through that process is, well, I'll give you some examples. You know, airlines recently in the past years when they're having their best times ever, they spent 96% of every dollar they made on stock buybacks. And that doesn't count M&A activity, which also enriches shareholders. So they were spending every penny that they were making and giving it to shareholders. They had nothing left over for employees, for savings, anything. And when they do that, the CEO is able to, in a way that helps the shareholders prop up the stock price, which allows the CEO and the executive team to get their bonuses. And if I think of my competitors, my competitors spend literally 60, 70 cents of every dollar at times on um, stock buybacks, debt service from uh, leverage buyouts. So basically like buying out stock before you even have the money to do it through a leveraged buyout through high yield bonds and customer and employee churn. If you, if you kind of take those four things, uh, well, adding executive pay as a, as a fourth, if you take, you know, what shareholders get, what executives get customer turnover and employee turnover, and you kind of put them to like a reasonable place that like most people would put them it makes up enough for everybody to make a living wage. And I think that's where the potential public policy eureka moment came for me or like what should spread. And I get how there's probably a lot of small businesses out there listening to this show, listening to this podcast. And a lot of people who say, literally, Dan, if I did what you did, we'd be out of business the next day. We'd run out of money. And I get that. But that's because partially because of a lack of distribution of demand. When the demand for your product or service for your business gets concentrated on top, you get harmed by this system before the money even gets into your domain. 
And so if we had a way of kind of level setting all of these things as a society, as a democracy, what have you, the cost to actually serve and produce to the customer wouldn't need to go up and the efficiency level would go way up because all of this kind of churn and burn and bait and switch that's baked into our economy costs all of us tons of money. You take away that expense and that pays for everybody to either make a living wage or very close to a living wage. That's really, really insightful. Thank you. I, I think there are a lot of listeners who are curious to know, like how, how do the mechanics of this work? Do you get into that and worth it? Or is it, uh, you know, is, is it just more of a narrative? What, what, what can we expect when we read the book? Yeah, it's both. I mean, there are scenes that I give you that are some of the most, uh, crazy, like heartbreaking, suffering scenes of my life. Um, and there are other times where it's just, you know, pretty simple, like connecting dots, like here's how you can implement this. Here's how you can manage communication. Um, just a quick like scene. Um, I was uh, actually sitting where I am right now in my home and we were hoping to get uh, a ruling from a judge when our company was sued by a minority shareholder for the types of policies that we have in place. And the company was looking at going under because the, the the lawsuit would basically bring the entire company down. And you never know when you hand something over to a third party decision maker like a judge. Right. You know, it seemed it I, she's she seems great. Her credentials seem great. But when your life is on the line there and you're waiting for it to come in. So I'm sitting on my couch and I'm trying to download my lawyer tells me that the email came through and the judge ruled and I'm screaming at him to open it. <laughs> and he's telling me, no, don't, don't. He's like, I'm not going to open it because if I read it wrong or something, I'll never forgive myself. Like, you got to open it and read it yourself. But I can't get my computer to boot up. So I start screaming at him. And he says that, you know, we're going to be okay, basically, that she ruled on our favor for everything, that we're going to get our attorney's fees reimbursed, and that we're going to be able to keep going. And this is in like 2017, in the summer of 2017, I believe, or maybe 16, one or the other. And, uh, you know, I started crying because I felt so relieved. I had been being sued for two and a half years and there had been a, like a massive like PR oppo research campaign that had come with it and all these things and all that was gone. And I could at least until the appeal came through, I could breathe a sigh of relief. And so tears came down my face and, you know, you get really close uh, with your lawyer and you trust them and they take care of you. And so I said to my lawyer, Paul, I said, Paul, with tears streaming down my eyes, I said, I, I really want to give you a hug right now. Aww. And there was a moment, a brief moment of pause. And, you know, I was waiting for Paul, what he would say back. And Paul said, hey, Dan, I think I got to go. And he, he hung up the phone. <laughs> I just... <laughs> <laughs> it no wow. interest. And it's like that like those are like the scenes that like when you're living them, they're just like they're just incredible. So I shared all that in like a very intimate way. And then we had a very practical how how to guide. And I'm I'm super pleased um because sometimes, you know, I sometimes I feel like, oh, you know, instead of like doing interviews and, and, and writing a book, like I'd rather spend more time with my nine nieces and nephews about to be 10. I'd rather, you know, and, but then, you know, I just heard from a, a, a pharmacy in rural Missouri, a two location pharmacy that they doubled their lowest paid workers pay from $22,000 a year to $45,000 a year. And that they took the information from the book worth it 
and they kind of walked step by step through it, walked their employees through it, and they decided to do that. And they're they're getting a payoff for it. It's working great. And those are the types of stories that kind of keep me going and keep me pushing myself, even when I'm sure like both of you, there are days where you think, you know, there's other things I could be doing rather than trying to get this info out there. But then the days like that just really keep us all going and doing the best we can. Awesome. Yeah, this conversation is definitely keeping me going for today, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, um, You know, I wanted to point out uh, some of the, the points you brought up about stock buybacks. Um, there's an incredible tracker uh, run by Just Capital that's tracking how the 100 largest public companies in the U.S. are responding to the coronavirus. Um, oh, check that not out. only, yeah, it's, it's worth it. I think for the, the folks that are listening, they have five principles around workers' health and financial security, adopting practices to minimize job losses, putting workers first and engaging government to do so, supporting local communities, and then the C-suite leading by example. Um, but there are some also great examples of large companies that are curtailing um, stock buybacks or even um, financial services forum. I think is, is banding together to um, stop stop buybacks through the second quarter um, because I, I I think your point is is very valid that if, if if the economics were looked at differently that it is possible to pay a living wage to all employees and I think um, you make an excellent point that should resonate with the management teams of large companies and with that I wanted to segue into. Um, just another another kind of question along the same lines. You know, you've been called a socialist by Rush Limbaugh, but by, as you've been called a visionary by others. So perhaps just very briefly for us, can you set the record straight? Where do you stand on the role of business in our society? Um, do you are you are you, you kind of viewing yourself as a capitalist? It seems so, but I think it would be good for you know, some of our listeners to perhaps have that clear answer as well. Well, so um, Trevor Noah asked me that on The Daily Show one time. He, he, he wanted to pin me down because there had been three or four TV shows that I've been on that were asking me the very same question that you're asking me and, and wanted to pin me down. And, uh, you know, Trevor and I met at a dinner one time. We started texting me and The Daily Show was my favorite show in college. That's back when Jon Stewart hosted it. So I was pretty excited when he texted me one morning and said, hey, can you come on The Daily Show as my guest, you know, in, in a week? I want to have you be our, our guest. And, you know, he normally they do just the one segment interview, but he offered me to do a two segment, you know, so a very long form interview. And he wanted to pin me down on some of those issues. So he asked me if I was a socialist and I told him, well, I'm not, I'm not very good with labels. And he said, that's exactly what a socialist would say. So I guess it was <laughs> checkmate. For Trevor Noah pinning me down, claiming that I'm a socialist because I don't like the labels. I, you know, I don't know what those terms mean anymore, honestly, because it used to be yeah. like you know, public versus private ownership is like the classic definition of socialism, I think. Like the means of production are owned either by pu pu public or private. And I think that, you know, some means of production are owned by public and I'm OK with that. And some are private. I mean, obviously, the majority are going to be private, but anymore, it seems like socialism is just a term for people that believe that that we should value humanity and get their needs met. And so if that's what people mean by socialism, then, you know, it's hard for me to deny that because I do think 
if you look at what's holding back entrepreneurship, well, let's talk about business formation, right? I think we would all agree any good capitalist wants businesses to be able to start. Does everyone agree with that? Like, you know, that's, that's a basic principle of, of capitalism. Top two reasons why businesses don't start. Number one, lack of funds. Number two, healthcare. Right. So if we had a small universal basic income and we had some centralized healthcare system that we all had um, access to, we would see business formation explode. And so I think it's less of a binary choice between any of these isms that we want to talk about. And it's more of like, what's the practical solution? What's the outcome that we want? The other thing that every business knows is what got you here won't get you there. And so whatever worked 40 or 50 years ago, when we were in the golden age of opportunity in some ways, you know, at least for certain people, we are excluding people based on ethnicity and gender and nationality, which is horrific and we shouldn't do. But there was, statistically speaking, there was more of a sense of equality of opportunity and a more uh, people had a better chance to get a leg up and be able to save for retirement and all those things. So if we want to look at it practically, let's do whatever we need to, to increase small business formation, increase entrepreneurship, increase competition. The new capitalism is now really more like cronyism and monopoly and oligarchy. So that's what we're fighting against, but it's masquerading as capitalism. And those people are actually the most socialist people there are because they want all of us to bail them out and prop them up and bend all of our democratic laws and principles for their benefit. So I would say that it's more capitalist in a way to support UBI, to support 100% access to medical care to support 100% access to some level of education, training, opportunity uh, to support, you know, the family unit around um, uh, young children being educated and fed and all those things. If you have a little bit uh, higher floor for people to drop to, people can take more risks and any more this economy, the upside, the winner-take-all environment is so high and the downside of losing is so costly that people don't want to take risks anymore, which is evidenced by these people claiming to be capitalists, always needing a bailout whenever there's a problem and thinking that they need to guarantee financial security for future generations rather than the people directly around them getting what they need to survive. So I would say I'm capitalist, but in a way of like human-centered capitalism, not in a way of crony capitalism to have very few people get everything. Dan, I know we're we're running a little long here, which is incredible. This is maybe the best interview we've ever done. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I just want to ask you, cause I think you're a purpose driven business superhero. You probably won't accept that term, but I think no. you are. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. Um, and so we need to know, um, what is, what does Dan Price do in the morning to get yourself ready to, I mean, I know you said you, you wake up on the couch at 5am, but do you have any special routines in the morning or anything that you do to kind of get yourself ready to, to take this? this stance and, and advocate for this important change? Well, one of the beautiful things of taking away the winners take all approach to business is that the people at the top 
have the chance to get a little bit more of their life back. Of course, you know, if you think of like, compare my life to like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, and by any metric, you'd have to say they're a thousand times more successful than I am. But if you watch the way I live my life versus them, I think you would conclude that I have a better lifestyle than they do. And I don't know if it's like a, a, a morning routine necessarily, but I do believe either in the morning or sometime getting some quiet time, getting out on a walk, doing something every single day to invest in yourself, putting your health and the capability of your health first and foremost. And then I would say like having the, the right boundaries, not beating yourself up over what you can't do, but doing what you can do all the time and trying to push yourself, but not going beyond that. And I would say that one of the things that that shift of having more of a not me, us mentality at Gravity Payments has done is I can, I can go to my employees and I can say, this is your problem to solve. You know, that hero mentality that I used to have that is kind of worshipped in, in business circles, it really hurts people at the top, you know, in some ways, because all of a sudden it's all on them. So I would say, I don't know that I always have like a, a specific routine. It changes all the time. For me, variety is what works. For most people out there, I think they need to have discipline around a specific routine. But I exercise every day. I eat majority vegetables. That's super important to me. I try to give myself some type of peace or quiet or meditation every single day. And I really think about investing in my health first and foremost. I think if you say like in my 20s, I was becoming wealthy from a like a money standpoint. But in my 30s, it's like, no, I want to invest in my health. And I would encourage all of the, all of the listeners out there, think about your health as way more valuable than your bank account balance. Because if you love what you do, if you love your job and you want to work and you're excited to get up, you know, that's kind of the ultimate dream. And if you're drawing correct boundaries where you're not working too much to get burnt out and you're having the right kind of like health routine for you, you're going to be able to work for a lot longer. So you put that on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale, you put your faith in the, you know, Dow Jones industrial average or anything else. I would say it's just a better bet to invest in your health, in your relationships, in like how you feel about yourself, how you feel when you look in the mirror. And, and it's a worse bet to acquire more money. So just that shift has allowed me to, you know, just have variety. And whereas in my 20s, I spent all my time working. In my 30s, up until COVID, I was working 50 hours a week, which you, you two both know, that's like vacation for mode for all of us, working 50 hours a week. I mean, it was just the most cushy life I could ever dream of. And, and, and it felt so good. And it left me plenty of time to spend with my nieces and nephews to exercise, to eat well, all those things that I think are really important foundational elements. With that, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank and you. if I could give you a virtual hug, uh, I thank would absolutely so do so. And it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, Dan, it was a great interview. Thank you so much. Um, keep doing what you're doing. You're making a difference for a lot of people. And, and uh, 
for, for us in the audience too. I just want to say too, for any of the listeners out there, I'm very active on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. So feel free to connect to me. I do try to make a point to see every private message. I try to respond to as many as I can, but I'd love to be in touch with everybody. Um, and of course, you know, if you have people out there that gravity can help in terms of just saving them money or like getting them set up product wise for success in digital. It's so huge for us right now. Our backs are up against the wall and between the macro economy recovering us helping our clients recover sooner than that and us helping more clients, you know, we basically have to double in the next year. Otherwise this will not turn out to be the best story when the history books are written. So it's going to happen. Thanks Thanks, so much. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Before you go, I wanted to remind you that my book, The Good Your Money Can Do, was released a couple weeks ago. It is a guide for anyone looking to use their money and all their resources to line up with their own values and to find more meaning and purpose. I hope you will check it out at www.thegoodyourmoneycando.com. You can also find links to the book and where to purchase it on my social media at Conscious Investor on Instagram, as well on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for your support. I'd love to hear any feedback from you.